That rather haunting tune is Harry James's A Long, Long Time. Some of the music that's been put to excellent use by Ken Burns in his documentary on World War II. The final episode will be next Sunday, after which we hope to talk to some of the people that uh, were eyewitnesses to the events. In particular, we'd like to bring back Richard C. Hodlett on the program. In recapping the events that took place at D-Day on uh, last night's show, I thought of the fact that Richard Hodlett uh, filed a report for CBS that was broadcast via shortwave back here at home, and it was, I believe, the first broadcast that came back reporting on the action as Fortress Europe was invaded by the Allies. I'm also struck by that Harry James tune in that uh, one night in a, uh, a jazz club in Leningrad back in 1991 where a Russian friend had taken uh, my friend Karen and I. They performed that tune and many other World War II standards which are still, still revered in Russia. There's an awful lot uh, that Ken Burns uncovered in that documentary that, uh, that, that this correspondent was certainly unaware of, and I know a lot of people reasonably knowledgeable about World War II were also shocked to find such things as uh, uh, a U-boat commander in New York Harbor sank uh, many ships, and that uh, the Gulf Coast between Galveston and, and Florida lost a lot of, a lot of tonnage to, to Nazi U-boats. I mean, it's generally known that a lot of ships were sunk, but you think of them as being lost out in the mid-Atlantic, not, uh, not in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, a couple days back, I, I flew uh, from University Airport here in Davis down to Fresno to visit a friend, and there was a, a fellow down there that had a World War II vintage canvas-covered aircraft that, uh, that apparently was used as a spotter plane in the Pacific Theater. The pilot said also it was the kind of plane they'd use to fly the generals around in. Looked like a very sturdily constructed uh, two-seater, but uh, the pilot started talking about these other documentaries that had been put out in conjunction with Ken Burns, and one of them was on California War. Described how, uh, you know, also unbeknownst to the general public, uh, they lost a lot of ships right off of Santa Barbara. Multiple oil tankers, in fact, were sunk uh, coming out of, out of the Santa Barbara Harbor area, and they had the oldest man, who was an eyewitness to one of them going down, saying that uh, he was glad they'd finally gone out and looked and found his sunken ship, because over the years, as he described, watching the Japanese submarine torpedoes close in on the boat, uh, nobody believed him. Illustrates the fact that uh, the government can cover things up successfully if they think that it's necessary. We hope to talk more about this excellent documentary on uh, next week's program. We also hope, too, to uh, have seen by next week's show the documentary coming to town titled In the Shadow of the Moon. In sort of a parallel fashion to what Ken Burns is doing to uh, World War II veterans, evidently uh, David Singleton uh, got together and interviewed the Apollo astronauts, who uh, are not getting any younger themselves. Uh, the 12 men to walk on the moon, only 10 remain alive, and uh, between interviews with them, and uh, the men had orbited the moon, along with some footage that's never been seen before. This promises to be a very, very interesting documentary. We hope we'll talk about that as well. All right, since we're talking about historical things, and I, and I guess we are, we shouldn't let the month of September pass without noting that um, in September of 1957, there was an incident down in Little Rock, Arkansas, where the federal government was pitted against state authorities, when for the first time uh, there was a test 
of the Supreme Court's Brown versus Board of Education decision. And by the way, that took three years. The decision came down in 1954. Uh, we would refer you back to our May 17th program here where we spoke with William Batetta, who is the Chief of Interpretation and Visitor Services at the Brown versus Board of Education National Historic Site in Topeka, Kansas. But uh, on Tuesday of this week, uh, various local and national dignitaries, including former Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton, uh, convened on the steps of Central High School to commemorate the 50th anniversary of its integration. It's pretty sad to look back and recall that the then Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus ordered the Arkansas National Guard to prevent the students from entering the high school, which prompted President Eisenhower to basically send in paratroopers. He sent in federal troops from Kentucky to escort students to school. Article in The Economist magazine noted that uh, Central High School was not the first school in Arkansas to integrate. That was Charleston, a small town in the west of the state, which actually managed to, with little fanfare, get 11 black students into school there with 480 whites just two months after the Brown decision. And in a not-related story involving uh, academia and race relations, uh, it might be worth just mentioning in passing here, a new book out about the rush to judgment in Duke University that took place last year. In a book titled, Until Proven Innocent, it's revealed that while a renegade prosecutor was uh, misbehaving in a legal sense to basically um, uh, level charges against three lacrosse players that were, let's say, difficult to substantiate at best, the, uh, the dean of the university and the faculty at Duke don't look very good themselves. Writing in Newsweek, Evan Thomas noted that the authors make the Duke faculty look at once ridiculous and craven. For months, not one of the university's nearly 500-member faculty of arts and sciences stood up to question the rush to judgment against the lacrosse team. So much for the ideal of the liberal arts university where scholars debate openly and seek the truth. But they did note that uh, one group did appear to show some common sense. That was the student body. Aside from a few noisy activists who assumed the players were guilty, the Duke undergrads mostly overlooked the political correctness of their professors. And one international story that's still unfolding we'll have more to say about in the weeks to come is what's taking place over in Burma, also known as Myanmar. Personally, I prefer to call it Burma since I was there in 1988 and sort of fell in love with the country in the, the brief stay I had there of five days. It's apparently the current junta, which is renamed in Myanmar, whose rule is currently being challenged by Burma's other major social institution, that of the Buddhist religion. The, uh, the gang that currently rules Burma is, uh, is not such a nice bunch of people. I hope that uh, we can see changes there and that Aung San Suu Kyi, who actually was elected president about 15 years ago, can, perhaps like Nelson Mandela in South Africa, you know, assume the reins of power there and, and move this country in the direction it needs to go, which is to say out of the hands of a corrupt ruling clique. And when it comes to uh, corrupt bad leadership, we would note that uh, Governor Schwarzenegger is trying to move the California Republican Party to the center. To his credit, the governor is balking at this, uh, this, this corrupt scheme of certain activists in the GOP to try and get a ballot initiative that will allow the Republican Party to pick up about 20 electoral votes in the next general election without having to do anything. 
a few cynics uh, such as us have pointed out that in the state of Texas, it would be very easy to implement an electoral reform like this that would uh, split the electoral votes of the state. But uh, there seems to be no effort to do so in Texas. They're focusing in on California's 55 electoral votes. Which means if you can be certain of anything in life, it's that this ballot initiative has absolutely zero to do with fairness. All right, and a final item of the day. I think we should make this the final item of the day. Uh, We want to come back and talk about that story about levees and the Army Corps of Engineers' insane idea to strip vegetation off of levees. But let's talk about the, the Delta in terms of the peripheral canal. This vampire that continues to arise from the grave and will continue to plague us until someone manages to drive a stake through its heart. But what amazes me is this, this cockamamie reporting you see about the peripheral canal. When Matt Weiser, writing in The Bee, says, referring to the 1982 version of the peripheral canal, A generation ago, critics feared the canal was a south state water grab, though scientists now seem to agree that separating exported fresh water from the Delta environment may be a good idea. Now, if you believe this argument, you know, I would like to engage in some real estate transactions with you. Just about all the problems related to the Delta are due to the fact that we're sucking water out of the southern part of it instead of letting it flow through to the San Francisco Bay Area. A century ago, ocean-going ships that needed to come into the, into the Delta area and kill off all the barnacles on their hull by basically parking it in fresh water only had to go as far as the Carquinas Straits. With water diversions, you now see saltwater intruding up to Benicia and well beyond. Now it's true that scientists estimate that there may be uh, some natural disaster that might cause more intrusion of salt water into the Delta, but the concern of Southern California is that their water will be contaminated, not that anything good will happen to the Delta environment. So yes, in spite what you read in the Bee uh, last week, this canal remains a water grab. But in playing politics, uh, they've got a new plan now, $1.9 billion for Delta Ecosystem Restoration Programs, but only if there's progress on a canal in some form. The article in the B did quote Barbara Berrigan Paria, who is campaign director of Restore the Delta, a Stockton-based coalition of local agencies and environmental groups. She noted we are 100% against this through Delta armored conveyance. We do not believe that rerouting our last major freshwater source, the Sacramento River, is going to restore the Delta. We think it will destroy the Delta. To which we say, hello, yeah. Of course, not to worry, in spite of all of our flood risks in the Sacramento area, these new proposals are going to call for wider, taller levees along the entire route. And to make sure that they're earthquake tolerant, their foundations first must be excavated to remove unstable soils. So this plan will necessarily take out hundreds of acres of farmland along the 48-mile route and may alter the existing habitat along the way. May? You know, the real solution here is before you build a housing development anywhere in California, you're going to have to certify that you can get water to it. And if you can't get water to it, then you shouldn't build the housing development. We can't put 20 or 30 more million people in this state. But real estate developers and the politicians they buy off wholesale would like to do just that. 
The notion that you can save or restore the Delta while simultaneously shipping more and more water to Southern California is just absurd. And on that note, I think we'll call it a day. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time, at which point we will bring you our interview conducted with Michael Pollan, the author of The Omnivore's Dilemma. So we'll see you next week at the same time.